thought-leading insights on data and analytics in the healthcare space. This is Healthcare Analytics Decoded, a podcast by Quantros. Welcome to Healthcare Analytics Decoded, a podcast by Quantros. I'm Tyler Kern. Coronavirus has had a massive impact on the healthcare system as a whole, and with many questions to answer and ramifications to discuss, we turn to healthcare experts to give us their insights on the current situation. On today's episode, Lindsay Klein, General Manager of Provider Business at Quantros, is going to speak to Dr. Reg Gilbreth. He is the Senior Vice President, Chief System of Care Integration Officer at Navicent Health. And they're going to talk a lot about how the day-to-day operations have changed, the questions that COVID-19 have raised for the healthcare industry, and how things are going to look different moving forward. But we're going to start off with Dr. Gilbert's first answer, talking about how COVID-19 has changed the day-to-day operations for him and the overall impact of coronavirus on the healthcare industry. It's completely changed what we do from day-to-day. It just tossed out all the old stuff, and, and now we're completely... I mean, I'm not even incident commander these last two weeks, and uh, and yet every project I get is uh, something to do, something to do with COVID. All right, so uh, it's that that's yeah. phenomenal how we've how we've managed to to uh, uh, as a, as a general as an industry, especially in America that we're familiar with, have have uh, been able to change fairly quickly. You know, to to uh, uh, managing the condition. I'm, I'm sure there were some patients where the surge exceeded the ability to care for patients, and there might have been, if you will, unnecessary mortalities, et cetera. But for the most part, uh, the healthcare profession in America has risen to the challenge, I think. Question Someone on, would... so that's an interesting, you know, your take on, hey, the day-to-day, not only of what we do as health professionals and as an organization, but even the requirements that we had previously been held under are now gone or have changed. Do you think that goes back to normal? So just think about, you know, CMS and the Joint Commission kind of suspending uh, core measures reporting and quality reporting for a six-month period. Do you think after that six months, we go back to what it was before? Do you think we don't do it at all? Or do you think it's some potential middle ground? Well, it kind of depends on the current pandemic, you know, I mean, like Mm -hmm. I said earlier, is it a three month window here we're looking at? Is it business as usual in the summer? We go back to concerts, restaurants, healthcare as usual, elective surgery, or, or is it 24 months just to handle this current pandemic or is COVID going to move every year? Like, you know, and then we have to get into that whole process about a new vaccine every year for COVID like we do for influenza. Uh, I don't think it's going to wipe out mankind and womankind, but I think, you know, we, we really don't know how robust this organism is. Now, we know that MERS, you know, the, the Middle Eastern respiratory virus came and went uh, in, a, in, a, in a, uh, a spring, you know, in, a, in hot weather and has just been low, low grade at this point, low level transmission. And we know SARS back in 2003, you know, came and went in a season, so to speak, and, and really hasn't come back. Mysterious, I don't, I've heard nobody explain to me how those two coronaviruses, you know, why they came on so strong, you know, during one season and then mysteriously went away. Mm. Uh, so no, we really don't have an idea how, how much of an affliction will this coronavirus be uh, will we develop, you know, treatments? Uh, is hydro- hydroxychloroquine the answer? Remdesivir, uh, et cetera. 
you know, will the vaccines work? Is there immunity? There's discussion that immunity may not work. You may be able to get the same coronavirus again and again and again, you know, all of that. So we really, I mean, just getting through this current, uh, you know, pandemic is so many questions out there, right? But then what about the next pandemic? You know, uh, the next virus, uh, they tend to be viruses lately, not necessarily bacterium. So are we going to be confronted with, if you will, pandemic after pandemic after pandemic? You know, uh, so I'm not sure when it returns to normal. If, if this pandemic goes on full bore for 24 months and then we get another, uh, you know, uh, development, a new virus coming out of the depths of somewhere, <laughs> you know, spreading across the globe then I can tell you all this reporting we've been doing is going to sort of be a moot point, you know. Um, I mean, most of us are thinking we're going to return to some normalcy, you know, in the, in the you know, uh, late summer, fall. But uh, then the, the big issue is, is this going to come back like colds do? You know, seasonal, most everyone agrees that COVID probably is a seasonal organism. Uh, but then again, what that means is next winter, it's going to come back strong and we're going to be back in the same boat for a secondary, tertiary, quaternary wave, you know. Uh, so I'm, I'm not sure what what the, the, the measurement pundits are going to are going to uh, talk about and what the new metrics are going to be. I mean, right now, the government, I think, is struggling just to support hospitals you know, uh, with PPE and standards and vaccines and, and, you know, regulations and FDA and things like that with related to the, I don't think they have the bandwidth to, to go worry about what your CMS star report looks like. Yeah. So thinking that, knows? you know, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. You know, at some point we, we've got to incorporate, if you will, normalcy. There's a lot of people with a backlog of, of elective surgery, we we really, mm-hmm. as CMS recommended, you know, go to essential surgery only. What's what has been three four weeks ago? So there's a backlog of folks who who would love to have their surgery, uh, and it's really I think we prioritize. That was one of your questions based on survival. Is there a survival advantage? Does someone have a colon cancer? You know that needs to come out, and if we leave it there, there's more and more of a chance of invasion or or metastases. You know. You've got those issues, survival-based issues, uh, and then you've got symptom-based issues. The person who can barely walk because of severe, uh, you know, genital arthritis in their hip, you know, it's a pain-related or function-related uh, uh, issue, not a survival issue. So I think we prioritize, obviously, the survival and, and medical outcome, you know, probably takes weight if you have limited resource. But, um, you know, at some, some point, even if the pandemic continues, either low grade or moderate grade, uh, we're going to need to begin, go, go back to cardiovascular prevention, uh, things of that nature. Now, that theme really resonates because people who are at high risk for COVID, you know, actually have these chronic medical conditions, which we need to be treating better anyway. So there, you know, there is common ground that you can discover. Um, in, uh, in, you know, uh, treating, treating, if you will, COVID complications and also getting back to normal medical care prior to a pandemic. Does that make sense? It makes a ton of sense. And it, it also elicits a couple different questions. You know, I, I start thinking about things like who makes the decision around scheduling, rescheduling prioritization that you're talking about and 
you know, do health systems have enough scheduling staff? Do they have enough OR time? Do you worry about these cases going to an ASC because they can get them in faster if the hospital has a backlog? Have you guys thought at all about any of that? Well, yeah, and I, I try to answer those. That was the first wave of questions. Um, so, yeah, about, and that just came up again today. Now, of course, we're all paralyzed by the surge. I mean, there was a surge in Wuhan, China. There was a surge in Italy. There was a surge in Spain, surge in New York. And in all those places, there was discussion of we don't have enough ICU ventilated beds and we're going to have to ration, you know. And so we know that in this current pandemic, there are areas that were hit where the COVID pandemic outstripped the ability to manage just COVID related disease. Now that hasn't happened yet, knock on wood. I think maybe some of the Atlanta facilities would tell you, and it's getting a little dicey up here. Uh, I can tell you here, uh, we've 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 been okay all right now we have canceled elective surgeries for the most part we left it up to the individual physician and the patient uh you know we didn't we didn't ban it or scrutinize or or you know, make make people validate the need for surgery uh, but mo most people complied most patients and most physicians complied and it, we're not doing a lot of unnecessary elective surgery at this point in time but you, you know on the other hand you read about you know healthcare workers being furloughed uh, I can tell you, we've repurposed a lot of people. There's very little business going on in ambulatory surgery, very little business going on in remote testing, diagnostic centers, radiology, et cetera. A lot of the procedural areas, endoscopy, cardiac cath, et cetera. A lot of the outpatient arenas, you know, physician practices, et cetera. There's a lot of healthcare workers with time on their hands right now. And some organizations are furloughing them, right? So, and of course, the big issue for us is repurposing them back to COVID patients, a, a tough proposition, you know, like, uh, I know you're working from home <laughs> as a medical receptionist, but we want you to get back in the hospital to get in some PPE and deal with patients. You know, that, that's, a, that's, a, that's a strong dose of medicine right there. But in general, most, health, most healthcare providers are willing to rise to the occasion. And, uh, you know, you know, we're, we're, just very cautiously moving ahead as we approach certain surges uh, with, do we have enough staff? Do we have enough equipment? Do we have enough beds in the ICU, et cetera, et cetera. Meanwhile, the ORs are vacant. You know, we do have plans if surge gets really bad, we're going to use those anesthesia machines and we're going to mm -hmm. place patients in the ORs, you know, to manage medical COVID complications. Uh, so, you know, I think once, you know, there's all this surge stuff out there, uh, and, you know, you can look at healthdata.org and you can really look at state by state, nation by nation. Like I say, the latest on that prediction is that we're six days past surge in America in general. New York is a couple days past their surge. Uh, Georgia surges on May 1st, supposedly. And uh, other states, surrounding states like North Carolina surges in one day. And that changes. The predictions change. We used to be in Georgia 20 April was when our surge was going to be. But in reality, I think we flattened the curve. So now, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's a flatter peak and the surge has been pushed out to, to May 1st. Um, so once we get through the surge and, and you know, get an assessment of, of uh, what, what we have left in terms of staff, physicians, um, equipment, you know, space, et cetera, 
Um, and and the prevalent, you know, the surge is related to prevalence. And then, of course, with a 14 day window, of course, complications and mortalities begin to accrue. Once we can catch our breath and look at that in midsummer, we could sort of decide um, uh, w- w- is there going to be a secondary wave, tertiary wave? Is there going to be a low level uh, scenario here? And then how can we get, begin to build back the normal processes? Because there certainly will be a backlog of, of people who are being managed medically when they said, hey, should have surgery and, and uh, you know, people with survival-based needs, you know, cancer surgery, you, you know, et cetera, maybe vascular surgery or, and then, um, uh, you know, symptom-based needs, you know, when, when can we bring on, you know, some of the patients who have severe pain uh, or disabling symptoms and functional impairments, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I you know, I, I, it's kind of the, how I see it, but now should we p- begin to plan for that? Sure. Uh, we didn't let anybody go. I can tell you that, <laughs> you know, a lot of the nurses want to get on a plane and fly up to New York and work for $7,000 a week, you know, depleting our supply in some of the lesser uh, involved areas. And of course that that's a hard thing to manage, but we certainly don't want to furlough them because then they could say, we're out of here. We'll go to New York, you know? Uh, so we, you know, you need to maintain your workforce in preparation. And we have a, a, a staff redeployment center, which is keeping these folks relatively busy, whether they're working from home or they're redeployed to a clinical unit related to COVID. But, you know, at, at some point we've got to move them back into their regular jobs. Primary care has to resume. Elective procedures has to resume. Uh, surgery has to resume, you know, and I, I think, I mean, you, you presented the stuff, Lindsay, about, you know, do we prevent them from going to inflammatory surgery centers? The answer is no. I mean, I'm sorry, if you're a healthcare system and you don't own a few of those, uh, you're, you're uh, in a tough spot, right? Because I think this movement is going to push patients uh, to ambulatory surgery, virtual health, all the things that we've been talking about for several years now. We need to move to, if you will, more appropriate levels of care that are more customer centric, uh, rapid turnaround times, home recovery, expanding home health services. All of that we all agreed was inevitable, right? And was the yeah. way we needed to go yeah. in healthcare. I think the, this pandemic is going to push. Uh, at the end of the day, you're going to see a lot more virtual care. We're we're bringing up virtual care. We're now investing in virtual care. And we've developed the partners and putting into place virtual care that we've talked about the entire time I've been here. You know what I'm, I'm saying? And so um, it's now we've got the impetus to implement virtual care to help manage COVID. Uh, but, you know, in following of that, we're going to be managing all our, of our conditions that way. So it's pushing us, if you will, into virtual care. Will it push us into ambulatory if you will, lesser invasive surgery with home post-op recovery? Absolutely. That's not something to be resisted. We need, we need to adopt that and be prepared to do that. Um, mm. um, so um, uh, I, th- I think we'll redeploy the staff for scheduling. You can schedule from home or for goodness sakes, can patients schedule their procedures? Now, of course, there are, there are medical preparations and optimization and and, you know, restrictions, uh, you know, somebody can't just dial up and, you know, schedule their own heart surgery. You know, there's certain conditions that have to be met. But could all that move to more of a virtual environment uh, with folks who work at home, uh, who uh, in, in empowering patients, you know, in that regard? Sure. All, all of that could happen. If anything, I think the pandemic's going to push us down the path a lot quicker. 
uh, for things that we've already agreed we need to be doing. You know? Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, it's funny in talking to, to other facilities as well, how many said, you know, we've been talking about telemedicine forever. And for one reason or another, maybe because CMS didn't cover it as an office visit or because our providers were resistant, you know, we just kept kicking that can. And when this pandemic hit, basically within a couple of weeks, we went from 90% office-based visits to 90% telemedicine-based visits. So I completely agree with you. I think trying to then turn that back to now we still, we see everyone in the office again is, is just not going to happen. I think it also, the step further is beyond just telemedicine visits, things like remote monitoring, you know, so there's so much technology out there now that allows you to monitor a patient's heart pressure remotely to, you know, monitor a patient's blood sugar levels, those types of things. And I, I think it is forcing us technologically, but also behaviorally to really start using those tools as part of our overall kind of care strategy more readily. Yeah, well, the, the whole thing, what, I think what's happened here is the funding aspects, mm-hmm. <laughs> pro formas, the return on investment uh, became more positive. I mean, we implemented a product uh, in diabetes for care management with one of our practices. Glycohemoglobins went from 11 to 7. And uh, it was a granted thing where the patients got a tablet. There were 100 patients, this and that. So when the, when the pilot was over, massively successful. But we said, well, how do we spread this and deploy this to 10,000 diabetics with 150 mm-hmm. physicians? Well, that's going to cost two million dollars in tablets, um, and um, we're not—you know—the system wasn't prepared to do that. wasn't prepared to make that investment. Furthermore, none of this was reimbursed by the by the by any of the insurers or federal government. Right. I mean, they dabbled yeah. in it. They've said, "Well, yeah, if you're a rural area and, and you've got to meet these requirements, you've got to be 250 miles from a population center. You can't—you know—all that, you know." You know, the feds weren't paying for it and states weren't paying for it. Insurers weren't paying for it. And here we were supposed to, as a healthcare system, good proof of concept, you know, invest two and three and four million dollars under the old pay. We never reimbursed that. The ROI was negative. Right. Mm-hmm. But now with COVID, the feds have said, oh, we'll, we'll pay for telemedicine. And yep. we've said, well, we, we better do telemedicine or our hospital facilities are going to be overrun. We've got to manage these patients and keep them well. Uh, send them home early, you know, and all that. Uh, so what changed, uh, Lindsay, was the, the financing. The financiers mm-hmm. said, we'll pay for it. And we decided because of that reimbursement, we can probably invest a couple million, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in, in making this work and pushing us over the hump. I think the will was always there. You know, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not sure it was necessarily healthcare providers resistant to change. I mean, you know, you saw your your diabetic in the office with the glycohemoglobin stuck at 11 for the past several months or years. I mean, you would embrace a tool that would enable better care of that patient, you know, and, and that's what we found. We, you know, they just the on the cell phone and, the, you know, with a care manager, social worker type, you know, with the patient you know, uh, and the various aspects of care management. It wasn't any rocket science that we were deploying or, or physician intervention necessarily. It was all, uh, uh, you know, uh, care management that resulted in these patients 
getting their blood sugars down and their glycohemoglobins around seven, mainly ensuring their compliance, you know, and, and all the obstacles that led to that poor dieting, not taking their medicines, running out of medicines, can't get to care, can't measure their blood sugar, you know, all those uh, social determinant related issues. So on that you know, point, um, you and I have talked about the the social determinant topic for a very long time because clearly Atrium and Navicent um, are both leading edge organizations in that regard. You guys were AHA's Equity of Care Award winner in in twenty nineteen. Me. Um, you know, and I think. 18. Oh, eighteen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and you guys have have been at the forefront of we recognize there's inequity in the populations we serve and the therefore the outcomes that they get as a result of our care. I have been amazed, you know, and and folks in healthcare on the front lines like yourself have been talking about the social determinants equity of care issue for years now, but it has not reached mainstream proportions until this pandemic. And it's kind of in some ways a shame, but hopeful that now people are recognizing, you know, people of color, people in um, impoverished areas, people with not access to to fresh foods, people with housing inadequacies, et cetera, et cetera. That is such an, that has such an impact on the outcomes of those patients. Um, What are you kind of hopeful about now that the media and and the public are talking about these the the equity of care and the social determinants issues. Well, it it, it takes resources to impact social determinants. Okay, mm-hmm. and um, so you know African Americans are disproportionately affected by COVID, as it turns out. You know, whereas I think percentage of the population is somewhere between. 20 to 30 percent in most of America, 31 percent in Georgia. What we're experiencing in our experience here at Navison is 80, uh, about 85 percent of the mortalities are African-American, whereas only 30 percent of the population is African-American. So it's mortality is disproportionately affecting African-Americans because you would expect, you know, if you have 30 percent African-Americans in your population, that 30 percent of the mortalities would be would be uh, African-American, but in reality, 85% are, right? So um, then you might look at something like testing and prevalence. Is it more prevalent in the African-American community? In our case, 58% of uh, our our tested positive are African-Americans, and remember, only 31% are African-Americans. So again, the prevalence in African-Americans seems to be higher uh, so then we asked the question, well, are we testing African-Americans less? So uh, the percentage of tests that we've done, uh, granted testing has been limited, but here to four, 1,500 some odd tests that we've done, 43% of those tests are African-Americans. And remember, 31% are, are African-Americans. So in that regard, we're testing more African-Americans than proportionally you would expect, right? So in some communities, uh, they've dis- they've discovered we're only testing African Americans ten, uh, you know, ten percent of the time, right? So, and their their proportion is thirty percent. So somehow African Americans are not getting tested. So let's deploy mobile testing units or dispel myths. You know, bring people to care, resolve transportation, all those related social determinants, etc. So 
Uh, that's what we've discovered so far. Now, our, our theory about why mortality rate seems to be higher, it's low numbers, okay? I mean, we're talking under 10 mortalities in, in, our, in our region right now. Uh, now, it's much, much higher up in Atlanta, much higher down in Albany. But, um, you know, our theory is that the prevalence of the high-risk medical conditions like heart failure, COPD, diabetes, uh, are much higher in the African-American population and that that uh, sets them up for the, uh, uh, the complications of co-virus, of COVID-19, right? So again, if you're going to intervene, would you intervene pre-COVID, pre-COVID disease, intervene in those patients with heart failure, diabetes, and COPD? Well, when we look back at our award in 2018, Lindsay, we, those are the three programs that we really looked at. We looked at uh, African-American disparities in readmissions for uh, diabetes. We deployed that application, that care management application I described earlier, where glycohemoglobins went from 11 to 7, right? We deployed another application in COPD called SensorMed, which was the same sort of care management uh, program where COPD patients, not only with smoking cessation and all that, but they would actually manage their disease vis-a-vis -vis an application. And again, great reduction in readmissions there. And finally, heart failure. We didn't exactly land on an application, but we really tried a lot of care management techniques involving social workers, et cetera, to reduce heart failure readmissions. So the same diagnoses, the same people, if you will, are healthy communities care management division and the same technology sorts of applications we would deploy for care management, right? And improving access to care. So really the seeds of what we were we need to do for COVID, reduction in COVID complications and mortality uh, on the same population African-Americans using the same techniques, care management interventions vis-a-vis -vis technology and or care management in the home, et cetera. Uh, and, and to actually improve the optimization of heart failure, diabetes and COPD could actually have an effect in reducing the mortality rates of those high-risk conditions once the patient gets uh, covirus. Does that make sense? It co makes a ton of sense. <laughs> yeah. So, so we we have now. You know, I would tell you since eighteen, I'd like to tell you. Oh, we've spent two million dollars and we've implemented uh, our diabetes program and all the diabetics in our area. It hasn't happened because of financial constraints, right? Um, nobody would reimburse it for one thing. You know, we do all this great stuff and reduce diabetes. Blue Cross Blue Shield be laughing all the way to the bank, you know? <laughs> hey, they're doing a good job down there, saving us a lot of money. Thank you very much. We ain't paying for any of it. You know, I'm being, I'm trying to be uh, uh, funny here, but but in reality, none of that was paid for, right? We're doing it all on our right. own to improve patient care. So now that the theme is, you know, not improve diabetes, heart failure, and COPD, just to optimize those chronic conditions and reduce readmissions, now it's a much stronger financial incentive you know, uh, optimize those conditions because it will improve the mortality rates in African-Americans who may end up getting COVID disease uh, and really utilizing the same techniques. So we've actually applied for a federal grant. There's all kinds of grants out there. There's a SEC uh, telemedicine grant for COVID and we put in a bid for that. And we're, that's exactly our position is that we're, we're, uh, we're going to use uh uh, our telemedicine, you know, that's going to enhance this as well, and uh, our our applications and and manage. Uh, co we call it the COVID nineteen um, uh, outcomes impact center, 
believe it or not. So, um, and uh, hopefully we get the, and it's probably gonna cover a half to a third of the cost. And we need to bring it up pretty quickly, get granted and bring it up to impact COVID disease. But even if COVID becomes a, a non-issue, we're, you know, in the next three months, we're still gonna keep that same center um, as a, uh, uh, as, you know, to manage the same conditions going forward, so. Yeah, that, that, that's great. And I, I, I think you're right. I think this potentially just provides a further springboard with financial incentives attached to better manage the entire patient, to manage patients where they are, to, you know, think about shifting care to different settings or different vehicles. Um, so it's nice that you guys, one, had already started down that path in many of these arenas, and this just allows you to expand that work. I think for other health systems that hadn't really done much of this, it's going to be a longer learning curve and runway to try to keep up with, you know, we have to move to more remote monitoring, telemedicine. We have to look at populations differently. We have to be constantly in the data to understand where our inequities are. Um, so it, it's, I think you guys were pretty far down that path. For others who may not be, it's probably a lot more work. Yeah, well, still, even though, <laughs> even where we are. But uh, yeah, so we right. have an active initiative to, to, um, improve COVID outcomes in African-Americans, you know, we're looking not only at mortality, but ICU admission, hospitalization, ICU admission, ventilator use, ARDS incidents, mm -hmm. um, the testing issues, as I mentioned earlier, at least at least in, in our area, we seem to be testing African-Americans uh, pretty, pretty well, a higher, high, at a higher than expected rate. So uh, that testing doesn't seem to be an issue. Uh, or a disparity related issue. One could say you ought to be testing a whole lot more people of all races, you know. Uh, so, uh, yeah, and, and so it's gonna, it's gonna, this whole pandemic is gonna advance efforts. I mean, it's really sh shown, you know, that, that uh, the disparities that exist in American healthcare that, you know, we've been talking about are really a negative impact on the current pandemic and how we need to work post haste at resolving disparities overall, not only for COVID, influenza probably it applies to, but also the next pandemic that's coming along. Coming along. Yep, agreed. So last question I had for you is, as you start to see the shift and recognizing your peak has not hit yet in Georgia, um, so your shift is probably a little ways down the road, but let's say we're in June, Things are starting to feel like, you know, they're receding. Um, how do you message to the community slash reinstill trust about coming into the hospital, about, you know, it's safe and we really want to be here for your care? Have you guys thought at all about what that might look like? Yeah, well, we got to give them a big dose of confidence, right, that it's not a place where you, you get, uh, where patients get COVID and and you wonder about the long-term impact of um, of the way personal protective equipment is going to be distributed and used at hospitals. I mean, I, I think for the longest time, uh, I mean, you walk into ERs these days and everybody's decked out in these spacesuits, you know, and pappers and all that sort of thing. So, <clears throat> um, and it's going to, it's going to be a while before we can say, well, no, this, this is non 
<laughs> I mean, furthermore, you know, we haven't tested half the population. We, we don't know who's COVID. We don't know who has a, a immunity and all that. All that's got to be worked out. So, um, uh, you know, the whole PPE consumption and utilization thing is going to continue on for a long time, even as we get back into normal normal business. Uh, you know, it's, it's sort of that universal precaution. You, you, know, you think about it in the past, we've had that notion of universal precautions, hand hygiene and, you know, that sort of thing. Don't don't sit back and, and have to put up a yellow sticker and say this patient has respiratory precaution that you practice universal precautions across the board. You're going to see some of that with COVID. And, and uh, uh, so, and I, you know, that should give patients a sense of, of, uh, of relief that we're um, you know, doing uh, uh, infection control precautions, even when they come in, e even though it's somewhat intimidating to see your healthcare provider, you can't see their face, they're masked up, they've got all this gloves and everything on and uh, washing their hands at every turn. I mean, on the one hand, it could be uh, confidence inspiring. On the other hand, it's going to be somewhat uh, you know, a different, a different way of dealing with your healthcare provider. Even now, you know, we had uh, a policy of essential visitation where families really can't come in and see their relative. They have to communicate vis-a-vis -vis, uh, cell phone or, or um, you know, um, some sort of video conferencing. And we had to create a whole division of, of uh, patient uh, um, representatives who would communicate with families on a regular basis. Uh, so wh when does that get relaxed? You know, uh, mm. uh, so it's it's going to be a different world, but, you know, patients seem to roll with it. You know, I mean, they don't want to come in a hospital where, you know, they've infected 20 other patients. You know, they want to know that it's safe. And, and clearly when they see you washing your hands and, and doing the appropriate thing with with, with uh, personal protective equipment, that inspires their confidence in you. So.